All right, good evening. So, uh, this evening we are finishing up, um, or coming close to, I should say, finishing up the Why Is This Even In Here series. Um, We'll actually be finishing up next week, uh, is what I meant to say. Uh, This is the second to last installment of this series, and I hope that you have been having as much fun uh, in this series as me, Uh, taking a look at these places in the Bible that are so confusing and strange and weird, and breaking them down in a way that is simple and easy to understand. Um, I was talking earlier today with my family, and uh, we were talking about last week's sermon because Allison and the kids uh, were out of town, as you guys know, and so they actually listened to the sermon in the car on their way back uh, this past Tuesday. And uh, Eli was saying that he didn't enjoy it as much because he didn't have anything to take notes with. And so he was telling me about his favorite parts of the sermon, and uh, I was like, dude, it's so awesome that you're paying attention and you're learning. Um, And he's like, yeah, I just wish that uh, I had something to take notes with. And then my daughter, um, as sweet as she is, said, I can't pay attention at all, Dad. It's too boring. And I was like, really? And she's like, yeah, you're really boring. I'm like, well, I'm I'm sorry to hear that. So uh, hopefully you have not been as bored as my daughter during this series um, and that it's been a blessing to you. Uh, But next week will be the end of this series uh, before we move into the next series of the fall. Um, Now, as you guys know, we are in an election year uh, here in 2020 and a very tense election year at that. Um, There's a lot of new things that our nation is facing, and all of those things make this particular election year seem like the most important election ever. Um, 2020 has been a pretty loaded year in terms of catastrophic events, right? Some might say that 2020 has been cursed, Uh, It started way back in January, if you remember this at all, with half of Australia being on fire. Uh, Then Kobe Bryant was killed in a helicopter accident. Um, Do you remember that earlier this year, President Trump was actually impeached um, by the House of Representatives? That happened this year. Um, And then the coronavirus hit. And everything in the world shut down. Italy was the first nation to completely shut down. Sports began to be canceled. Even the Olympics for the first time in history was postponed to an off year. Um, And then other tragic events. Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, among many others, uh, were brutally killed. And racial tensions reached a fever pitch in our nation. And all of this is just things that have happened here, other than the Australian wildfires that I mentioned. That's all just here in the contiguous 50 states. Okay, we're not even talking about other things that have happened around the world in 2020. Things like the flight in Ukraine that crashed in March, killing all 176 people on board. Um, or the earthquakes that hit in Puerto Rico and in Turkey. A mass shooting at a mall in Thailand that wounded almost 60 and killed about 30. Catastrophic floods in Jakarta. I mean, 2020 has not been a great year at all. We are (laughs) really in need of a win or two uh, as this year goes on. Um, 
Now, most of these events are things that are beyond people's control, right? Um, But the response to these catastrophes or wisdom that would lead to being better prepared for catastrophes like this um, is often uh, put on those who are in authority. People blame those who are in authority, and sometimes rightly so, for the way things have been handled. And that's why 2020 is such a significant election year. Because, like every single election year, there is a freshened sense of hope, right? Hope that if your candidate gets elected, they will right the wrongs that have been done. They will right the ship. They will get things moving in the correct direction. And this isn't just the presidential election, right? Congress has elections in both the House and the Senate. There are state and local elections, gubernatorial races, mayoral races, judicial races. So all of those are taking place this this year, and at every level, uh, power is up for grabs. And the prevailing thought is, if we can just get the right people in office— the, the correct people, then, then America will finally reach its potential. Now, of course, there's a, a great deal of debate on who the right people are and what exactly it even looks like for America to be its very best place. Later on this year, uh, closer to November, I'm actually, go- I'm actually going to be preaching a series on Christianity in America. And in that series, I'm going to talk a lot about politics and what it should look like for us as Christians to navigate the political world well in our country. So be on the lookout for that. But tonight's message isn't so much about politics as much as it is that politics provides us a picture. It provides us an example. It it provides us an example of the vain pursuit of putting your hope in human saviors. The vain pursuit of putting your hope in whomever is going to be in the Oval Office or any other office, that they will use their power to save us. Every candidate who runs for any type of office runs on a platform. And on those platforms, they always make certain promises. They pledge to the people to right certain wrongs, to create certain opportunities, to avoid certain pitfalls, and they promise to to benefit their constituency by doing certain things. But as you well know, oftentimes those promises don't last much longer than election night. Um, Our current president, famously, built his entire campaign on the promise of building a wall, a wall that we would not pay for, that Mexico would pay for. In just a few short months, he is hoping to be re-elected to a second term, and uh, he hasn't even come close to making good on that original promise. Um, But he's not the only one that made promises that he couldn't keep. This is a, a running theme Uh, So, in 1916, Woodrow Wilson ran for re-election of President of the United States on the premise that he would be the candidate to keep the United States out of war. 
But only 29 days after he was sworn in, he sought a joint session of Congress to declare war on Germany. Promise broken. Herbert Hoover, in 1928, promised the country unprecedented wealth. He said there will be a chicken in every pot and a car in every backyard to boot. But only eight months into his presidency, the stock market completely crashed and ushered in the time that we know as the Great Depression. FDR ran against Hoover in 1932 and promised that he would bring back work to the American people and he would work to reduce deficit spending. And though he did indeed bring work back to the United States, it was through additional deficit spending. He also promised in 1940, quote, Your boys are not going to be sent into any foreign wars. But then... Pearl Harbor was bombed, and shortly thereafter, he declared war on Japan. The same was true of Lyndon B. Johnson in 1964. He said, we are not about to send American boys 9 or 10,000 miles away from home to do what Asian boys ought to be doing for themselves. But what happened very shortly after he made that promise? The Vietnam War. But don't worry, America, Lyndon B. Johnson was a liar who couldn't keep his promises to keep us away from war. He created a mess of things, but I promise the next president is going to make everything much better. He is going to be the one to right the ship. He's going to be the one to save us and lead us into a much better time. This president promised that he would bring peace with honor in Vietnam. And so he was elected. And then the war got worse. It actually escalated. In fact, troops were still in Vietnam after his presidency ended in 1975. And how did his presidency end? Watergate. And he was impeached and removed from office in one of the greatest scandals in American political history. Jimmy Carter promised that he would put solar panels on the White House and deregulate the oil and gas industries. Ronald Reagan promised that he would pass constitutional amendments to allow prayer in schools. George H.W. Bush famously said in his uh, speech where he accepted the nomination at the Republican National Convention, read my lips, no new taxes. I think you know how that one went. Bill Clinton promised to overhaul health care. George W. Bush promised to reduce government spending. Barack Obama promised that he would close the bipartisan divide and unite the two parties. There was one study done by the site PolitiFact that revealed that Barack Obama only kept 48% of the promises that he made while he was in office. And I'm, I'm... Assuming by uh, what we have read here that that percentage of only keeping half of the promises you make is probably pretty true across the board. And maybe that's even being generous. That at best, a candidate is only going to keep half of their promises. So what's the point here? The point is the greatest president of the United States is always the next one. And in fact, this time, we might be in luck. Last month, on January 4th, uh, I'm sorry, on July 4th, 
Kanye West declared his bid for the presidential nomination in 2020. Kanye West. And he has been endorsed so far by a number of political powerhouses, such as 2 Chains, Chance the Rapper, Des Bryant, Kim Kardashian, and Elon Musk. Yeezy for president, y'all. Now, let's be honest, okay? All jokes aside, given the current landscape of choices that we have, uh, Yeezy may not be the worst choice, okay? I'm not going to tell you who to vote for if you voted for Kanye above the other options. I might not look like, that that might not be a bad choice, okay? Now again, this, this message is not about politics, But again, the picture of politics tells us something very important. And that is that if your hope is in any human leader, you will always be disappointed. Sooner or later. What you need is someone greater. Someone eternal. Someone with infinite wisdom, with infinite power, with infinite ability. What you need is... Is Jesus. So, today we're going to look at two stories, actually. These stories both take place in the book of Judges, so you can go ahead and begin to turn there. And as you're doing that, I'd like to issue a trigger warning for today's message. Um, the first story that we're going to look at is also about poop. Okay, we've already talked about one poop story in Ezekiel, when we talked about Ezekiel and his death cakes. So today we're going to talk about Jabba the Hutt and how full of crap he was. So just be aware that uh, this is all our kids are going to be able to talk about when they leave church. Uh, I know my kids for sure are going to say, Dad talked about poop in his sermon again. Ha 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 So trigger warning, all right? So turn to the book of Judges. We'll be in chapter 3. And we're going to look at verses 12 through 31. Judges 3, 12 through 31. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges. A cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. When Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, Silence! And all his attendants went out from his presence. 
And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. Hey, cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he rose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly. And the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and had locked them. When he had gone, the servants came. And when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, Surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. And there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syrah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. All right, so... As we have done every week, before we break down these stories, it's time for our quiz. What are the four essential principles of biblical interpretation? Yes, sir, you in the front. Genre matters, scripture interprets scripture. Very good. What else? The Bible must be read as an ancient document. One more. Yes. Thank you, sir. Note the difference between description and prescription. So, we read the Bible as an ancient document, understanding first what it meant to the ancient audience as uh, written by the ancient author at the ancient time. And from there, we can extrapolate the eternal truths. Then we see the difference between where the Bible records something and when it recommends something. Just because something is written there doesn't mean that it's commanded there. We also have to read the Bible in each of its unique literary genres, giving to those genres the type of meaning that the genre demands. And when we don't understand scripture, we read it with other scripture, not with outside things that may or may not support it. We interpret scripture with scripture. So, with those things being stated, let's break down these two stories, okay? I want to focus first on verse 31. Verse 31 is the story of a man named Shamgar. Let me read it one more time. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. 
Now listen, this is one of the coolest things in the entire Bible. This verse is one of the coolest stories in all of scripture, all right? This dude, Shamgar, gets one verse, one verse in the entire Bible. Now think about this. There are billions and billions and billions of people who walked the face of the earth uh, in history. So to have your name at all written in the Bible is an incredible honor, right? An incredible accomplishment. To have a story written about you in the Bible is even more of an incredible honor. And this guy has a very short story written about him in the pages of Scripture. And talk about making the most of your short appearance. Uh, Instead of getting a bio, he gets a body count. Okay? Uh, Shamgar, word for word, Shamgar is the baddest gangsta in the entire Bible. Okay? I I mean, he he took a DNA test and it showed that he is 100% that boss. I told you last week that small details make a big difference, okay? Small details matter. And the small detail that we have here is that he killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. Now, you might not know what an ox goad is. An ox goad is literally a stick with a pointy end. That's it. It is a sharp, pointy stick, It's a cattle prod, right? You poke an ox with it and it makes it go. That's literally all it is. And it's not even that sharp, okay? It has to be sharp enough to poke an ox and make it go, but not impale the ox or make the ox bleed. So literally you would walk behind an ox and gently poke it. And that would make it move forward. And this thug uses that pointy stick to kill six hundred Philistines. Now, I also said last week that sometimes it's the things that are not said that are almost important as the things that are. And here's one of those details that's not written that you have to picture in your mind. Like when you put yourself in the scene, you get this picture. One of the things that I find that's funny about this story is that After Shamgar killed one Philistine, now he killed 600 of them. After he killed the first one, he could have had a sword, right? You kill one guy, one soldier, and you can take his weapons. You kill one soldier and maybe there's a sword. Maybe there's a spear. Maybe there's a bow and arrow, right? There's going to be something, some kind of weapon, a dagger, something, a long chain, whatever the guys had, you kill one Philistine and steal his weapon. Now, he kills an entire platoon and more start rushing after him. At this point, there's a dozen guys dead on the ground. Others are coming after him. Now he's got a plethora of weapons in front of him. And this guy goes, you know what? I'm gonna stick with my stick. I'm just going to keep this, all right? All these weapons at his disposal, and he's like, no, I'm going to stick with this stick. Y'all, that's a flex. 
That is a flex. In all of the Bible, there are a few places where someone really flexes. This is one of those places, all right? This dude flexes hard and he goes, I don't need weapons. I don't need swords. I don't need spears. I don't need a shield. Come on at me. I got a pointy stick. That's a boss. Y'all, that's a boss right there. And this is pure speculation on my point. I don't know that this is the case, but it makes sense if it was the case. I'm willing to bet that in ancient Israel, this guy was their ancient version of Chuck Norris. Right? The way that we talk about Chuck Norris, they talked about Shamgar. Like when the Israelites are sitting at the campfire at night, they tell Shamgar stories. And they talk about Shamgar and they start telling Shamgar jokes. You know, they're like, you know, Shamgar, he can kill two stones with one bird. And the other ones are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're like, you know, Shamgar, you know how, how a giraffe was invented? Shamgar uppercutted a horse. That's how giraffes were made. Shamgar, Shamgar can kill your imaginary friends with a stick. Superman wears Shamgar pajamas. Like that's how the Israelites talked about Shamgar. And I hope to God, literally I hope to God, when I get to heaven, you're going to recognize everybody, right? You're going to walk up. There's, there's, you, you know that's Moses over there. You, you know that that's Paul over there. You know that's Noah because he's got two animals following him wherever he goes. Shamgar. I hope to God he still has his pointy stick in heaven. <laughs> like, I'm going to walk up and there's Shamgar with the stick. I'll be like, that's it. That's the stick. And he'll be like, yeah. Now keep moving. Sure, Shamgar, I'm going to keep moving. It is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Now we're going to break down these stories further. This story and the story of Ehud and Eglon. And the details of that story. Again, a hilarious story. You've got essentially an assassin who's left-handed. And we're going to talk about why that matters. Who goes into this very fat king. Only verse in the entire Bible that describes someone in that way. It's the only time, literally, that it says... He was a very fat man. So, what does that mean? That he was a very fat man. And this guy is sitting on his throne, fat as fat can be, and Ehud comes in and tricks him and says, Hey, I've got a secret message from God. And Eglon's like, Ooh, a secret. All right, everybody out. And so Eglon's like, No, 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 no. Or Ehud's like, no, no, let's, let's go outside into the, into the cool chamber. Cool chamber, by the way. And so he follows him into his cool chamber and says, all right, do you want to hear the secret? And Eglon's like, tell me the secret. And he takes his left hand, pulls out the dagger from his right thigh, and thrusts it so far into Eglon's belly that it says, the fat rolls close over the dagger. All right, that's some fat rolls. All right, this is a job of the hut looking dude, okay? And he has rolled himself in there and now he's gotten stabbed in the stomach and his fat just swallows up the dagger that Ehud's like, you know what, I'm gonna leave that there. I'm not even gonna pull it out because now it's covered in fat. 
But then it wasn't just covered in fat. It says, and the dung came out. Uh, It doesn't say from where, okay? So we don't know if that means he poops himself or if he got stabbed in the intestine and poop comes out of his belly, okay? It's really kind of a disgusting picture. So Ehud leaves him. He's like, all right, message received, I see. I'm going to get out of here. So he leaves. Eglon's servants are waiting. They know that he's in there getting a secret message from God. Okay, so they're patient. But eventually they're looking at their watches and they're like, unless this is a really long message, uh, maybe we should check on him. But the door's locked. And so the servants say, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. Which makes me wonder, is this something he would do? Like, is this a habit of this guy to relieve himself in the closet of this cool chamber? I don't want to be the servant that has to clean that up. Like, these are the servants who are going, oh, well, you know, he's probably taking a dump in the closet again, as he does. Some, who's going to clean it up this time? Let's draw straws. Well, eventually it gets to a point where they're like, we, we got to go check on him, okay? He, he must have fallen asleep in the closet or something. They go in, and he's dead. By this time, Ehud has run, and he gathers the other Israelites to him, and they charge up against Moab and kill 10,000 of the Moabites. And the land had rest, it says, for 80 years. So we're going to break down these stories and look at some of the details that are here. But before we do that, let's, let's zoom out just a little bit to look at the book of Judges sort of as a whole, because there's some themes in this book that frame these two stories and, and, and really begin to give us the thrust of our message for tonight. So if you're taking notes, As I know my son loves to do. Here is point number one. Temporary saviors bring temporary relief to eternal problems. Temporary saviors bring temporary relief to eternal problems. I've talked about this before. In the history of the nation of Israel, there's a continuous cycle. This cycle keeps going on and on and on and on and on, over and over and over throughout the entirety of their history. That cycle is that they will be in a period of blessing and then they'll fall into sin. And because they fall into sin, the Lord allows there to be oppression. And then during that oppression, the Israelites will repent and cry out to the Lord, and he brings them relief. And then while they're in that time of relief, they're enjoying his blessings. And then they fall back into sin. And while they're in sin, God allows them to be oppressed. And then they repent, and God brings them relief. And over and over and over and over it goes. Blessing, sin, oppression, relief. Blessing, sin, oppression, relief. This continues throughout all of Israel's history. Now where we find our stories here, during this time, Israel does not yet have kings. It wasn't until later on that they instituted a monarchy. And when they did, it was out of a desire, a sinful desire, to be like the surrounding nations. They cried out to the Lord saying, why don't we have a king like all the other nations do? 
But it wasn't ever the Lord's intention for them to have a king. They cried out for one, and so God allowed them to have one. And all those kings were a bunch of failures, so, uh, for the most part. But at this point in their history, they don't have kings yet. They have been led out of Egypt by Moses. Moses leads them through the wilderness to the edge of the promised land. Moses dies before entering the promised land, and Joshua takes over. Joshua actually leads the people into Canaan. And then Joshua dies. And when he does, the people fall away from the Lord. If you've got Judges pulled up and you go to chapter 2, verse 10, it says this. Uh, Let me um, uh, back up to verse 8. Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his, of his inheritance in timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. So, that leadership... In Moses, passed down to Joshua, and that generation of people faithful to the Lord passes away, and immediately the people fall into sin. They fall into idolatry. Uh, Look now at chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. It says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. As the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. This is where the cycle begins. The Israelites have enjoyed this time in the presence of God. They're in the promised land that he gave them. They're enjoying their blessings, but then their leader dies. And when their leader dies, they immediately begin to serve these other gods. And so as God had warned them, they begin to fall into the oppression of their enemies. But God, in his grace, doesn't just leave them there. There is punishment for their sin, but there is also grace. Look now at verse 16. It says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. So as they are there being oppressed, being plundered, God raises up men and women in this book. Okay, And there are some boss women in this book. Uh, One of my favorite stories takes place in chapter 4, where this guy, Sisera, is uh, one of the oppressors of Israel, and he escapes into a tent. And there he is in the tent, and the tent is owned by this woman, Jael, who's welcomed him in and says, hey, you can hide in here. I'll take care of you, I promise. So then she feeds him a meal. She gives him some warm milk to drink. And what does he do? He's like, I'm safe. I'm going to fall asleep. And then Jael takes a tent peg and slams it through his temple. And she delivers Israel. 
Awesome story. Uh, there's also a woman named Deborah who leads Israel as one of the judges here. So God raises up some awesome men and some awesome women to defeat the enemies of Israel and usher back in a time of peace. When the people would fall into sin, when they'd fall into the hands of their enemies, they're rescued over and over by these people known as the judges. But every time they'd be rescued and led by a judge, it was only a matter of time before they'd fall right back into their old ways. See, these leaders brought them some level of salvation and peace. But that salvation and peace were temporary. Because these human saviors, they could fight physical battles very well with ox goads and tent pegs and other cool weapons. They could defeat physical enemies. But the one thing these judges could not do is change people's hearts. Look at what it says now in verses 16 through 19. It says, The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them, yet they did not listen to their judges. For they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hands of their enemies in all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. Whenever the judge died, they were right back in their oppression. So there was a measure of freedom that came with a judge, but it was more like a crutch. And as soon as the crutch was removed, immediately the people fell. Now remember, Everything in the Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus. So what is the point of the book of Judges? To call attention to the promise of temporary saviors and the need for an eternal one. You know what one of the big differences is between Jesus and these judges? We just read it in verse 19. Where it says, whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. The death of temporary saviors led back to oppression. But with Jesus, the death of the eternal savior, it led to real lasting freedom. Jesus was the eternal savior. These temporary saviors, as good as they were, could not change hearts. They could not accomplish with their life or their death eternal freedom. But Jesus could. Jesus did. We need eternal savior. Because you and I are not unlike these Israelites in the time of the judges. You see, we have our own set of temporary saviors that we seek after. 
We've already talked about one form, political leaders. By hoping, if we just put the right guy in office, if we put a woman in office for the first time, if we vote this person in, if we enact these policies, if we rewrite these laws, if, 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 we, if we change the way that the nation is run, then we will usher in utopia. Let's put in the right regime and then we'll be free. Another form of temporary saviors are romantic relationships. We look at, at a romantic relationship and we go, you know what, if I, just, if I just have the one, then I'll be happy. If I just find the right person to complete me, to be my other half, I won't be missing. I, I won't have that hole in my heart anymore. I just need to find the one. But then the one turns into the next one. Well, well, it wasn't this one. Maybe it'll be the next one. The next one will be the one to rescue me from my loneliness. Or, or how about self-help? If I can just figure myself out, if I can just know what, what exactly my issues are and I, I read the right stuff to do the right things for myself, I can pull myself up by my bootstraps and I'll be good. I, I can help myself out of these issues that I have. Or how about consumerism? If I just have the right stuff, if I have more stuff, if I have their stuff, then I'll be happy. I mean, how many of us have been in a position where we're feeling sad, we're feeling lonely, we're feeling negative, and we go, I know what I need, a new phone. Or how about experiences? We, we say, you know what, if I just go out and I see the world, if I go on epic adventures, if I check things off the bucket list, if I just do all the awesome things I can think of, and you'll go on Instagram and you'll find these people whose entire job is to be a traveler around the world, and they post these incredibly artsy-fartsy pictures with stupid captions where they're in the middle of Tahiti, and they're like, freedom! And you're like, I want to be that guy. If I was doing that... I would be happy. Or how about substances, drugs, alcohol, whatever else? If I can just escape from reality, if I can just experience a higher plane, if I can just pull myself with a substance out of my body, I'll be happy. And here's the thing. Every single one of these saviors provides temporary relief. I mean, think about how you feel when you get a new phone, right? You feel like you're on top of the world. You, you want to make sure your other friends see that new phone. You're like, I have the iPhone 15. And they're like, oh, I thought there was only 11 out. <laughs> I know somebody. Check out my iPhone 15 over here. But then what happens? Before long, the iPhone 16 comes out. And somebody else has it. And you're like, well, what? This iPhone 15 isn't that cool anymore. <laughs> or you'll see a feature that's on the iPhone that's been on an Android for like five years. You're like, what are you doing, Apple? I say this as someone who has all Apple devices. Sometimes I'm like, catch up, guys. Come on. I pay a lot of money for your stuff. You think when you get a new phone, all right, I'm happy. But before long, it fades. And where are you? Empty. The political leader breaks his promises. You have a relationship with a, uh, another person, then the breakup happens. The self-help stops helping. 
The newer phone comes out and yours is old news. You get home at the end of your epic vacation. You come down from the high. And what are you left with? The realization that your temporary savior only gave you a temporary solution to an eternal problem. Now some people, when they're faced with that, they say, well, I just need more of it. Whatever that temporary savior is, all right, I just got to reload, redo, restart, refill. Let me get more of X, Y, or Z. Got to press myself deeper into it. And then they chase it forever and end up with nothing. These temporary saviors leave us knowing that we need something that isn't temporary. That thing that isn't temporary is Jesus. Point number two, when we aren't being led, we lead ourselves into destruction. When we aren't being led, we lead ourselves into destruction. Now remember, these people are living in freedom as long as there is a judge present telling them and showing them what to do. But as soon as the judge is removed, here's what happens. Chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Or, chapter 21, verse 25. The last verse in the book of Judges. On purpose, by the way. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If ever there was a verse that defined our society, it's this one. Everyone doing whatever was right in their own eyes. And we call that freedom. If you can do whatever you think is right, that is freedom. The Bible calls it the bondage that happens when you don't have a king to lead you. You see, we think freedom means not having anyone to tell you what to do or what not to do. I get to be in charge of me. I get to make up whatever I want to be true. I get to fashion truth after my own ideas. That's what freedom is, we say. But true freedom comes from being led into what you were created to do. Worship and find your satisfaction in God alone. A bird will never be free in a cage, even if it can be in that cage doing whatever it wants. A bird will only be free when it is set out to do what it was created to do, which is fly. We were created to worship God, and we will only be free when we're doing that. We learn uh, that these people, whenever God would deliver them, they didn't completely eliminate the enemy threat. Look now in chapter 3 in verses 5 and 6. It says this, So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and they took their daughters to themselves for wives 
and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. They always let some of the sin stick around. They never completely eliminated it. So slowly, one little compromise would lead to another compromise, which would lead to another, and this slippery slope would lead them into destruction. And so from that, we need to learn. If we do not determine to kill sin completely, to give it no way out, if we don't completely eliminate it, if we just give it a little bit of breathing room, just a little bit, before long, it will take control. So again, there's this continual cycle. Israel sinning, God allowing them to be conquered, them crying out for salvation, God sending a human judge or savior to rescue them, a period of rest, Israel falls back into sin. No matter how many times they were rescued, they kept falling back into slavery. Now it's interesting that for their entire history, the Jews had been waiting for a Messiah who will rescue them and set up an earthly kingdom. So shouldn't the book of Judges show that a political Messiah is only a temporary fix? The Messiah needs to be someone who is more than someone who can just win wars. He has to be able to change hearts. He has to be someone who can set up an eternal kingdom that will never fail or fall. And that is one of the central purposes of the book of Judges. To show them and to show us our need for Christ. So, with those general things being said, now let's look at a couple of specifics in the stories that we looked at. Uh, Point number three. God uses lefties. Now, raise your hand if you are a lefty. Any lefties here? One, two. All right, statistically, that's about right. There's two lefties in the room. Now, you guys know the world was not created for you, right? You guys know about right-handed privilege, am I right? Anytime that you are sitting at a desk trying to write on a notebook, you know as you smudge all the writing with the uh, side of your hand, This was not created for me, a lefty. Anywhere you go, you find things were made for right-handed people. You have to live in this world where you have to compensate for this genetic weakness that you have been cursed with. Left-handedness. In this story, we read that the assassin Ehud was left-handed. It says this in verse 15. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. Now, it's, it's normal to describe someone by talking about their ancestry. This is used to describe almost everyone in the Bible, to talk about their pedigree. So they, they talk about uh, where he was from, He's the son of Gera. They talk about the tribe that he was in. He's a Benjaminite. And then this detail is thrown in. A left-handed man. We might skip over that. Or we might look at that and go, oh, that's cool. I'm left-handed too. Moving on. But if we read the Bible as an ancient document, we have to know that this detail would have jumped off the page. 
when the book says, the Lord raised up Ehud, the son of Gera, the people were like, all right, son of Gera, good family, good family. He was a Benjaminite. Benjaminite, all right, good tribe. He was a left-handed man, and they'd go, what? He was a, a what? Left-handed? Why? Well, in the Middle East, even today, being left-handed is shameful. It is viewed as shameful because the right hand is associated with strength. In fact, even in the Psalms, it talks about God raising, his, raising us up with his victorious right hand. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. God has the right hand of victory. The left hand in this culture is only associated with two things. Weakness and butt wiping. True story. The left hand is associated with weakness and butt wiping. Today, in the Middle East, uh, Middle Easterners do not wipe with their right hand. They don't. They, they would not ever shame their right hand by doing something like that. So, pro tip for you lefties, if you ever go and, and, and visit the Middle East, don't ever reach out with your left hand to shake someone's hand. That will be seen as a cultural insult, a slap in the face. You're not even supposed to wave at people with your left hand. Never ever show your left hand because the left hand is weakness and butt wiping. So the point is, this detail about Ehud being left-handed is included on purpose. And again, it is the detail that would have stood out most in this story. So what do you think the point of it is? To show that God can raise up a savior that no one would expect. Someone about whom people would say, surely not him, right? You see, I'm sure Ehud, for his entire life, was looked down on for being left-handed. He was laughed at, made fun of, called a shame and a curse. I'm sure his family was embarrassed. Every time he used his left hand, his entire family would have been like, Oh my God, Ehud, can you just learn to do something with your right hand? Please, you're embarrassing me. Put that thing back in your cloak. Don't use your left hand. So God purposely raises up a Savior who's left-handed. That should call our attention to something specific. Someone specific. Jesus. Because Jesus, too, was the person about whom that everyone said, surely not him, right? He was a nobody. He was a a peasant. He had no pedigree. He had no wealth. He had no honor. There was nothing about him that would make people go, now that is royalty. And yet that is the Savior that that, that God chose to save us forever. Now, this also shows us the type of people that God uses in his story of redemption. Take a look for a moment at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. 
says this. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In other words, God uses nobodies. God uses failures. God uses people who don't have the pedigree, who don't have the giftedness, who don't have the, the, the pomp and circumstance. God uses the people that are looked at as cast-offs. Does that give anyone else hope or just me? God can use a dum-dum like me. Cool. I don't have to measure up to some standard for God to use me. When we look at the story of Shamgar, Even in that one verse that's easily skipped over, it says that he did all this with an ox goad. Why would Shamgar have had an ox goad? Likely he was a peasant farmer. That means an ox goad is all he had. He couldn't afford weapons. He he did not have what other people had. He didn't have the pedigree. He wasn't, for whatever reason, enlisted into the military. He was left on the farm. And so all he had was a pointy stick. And he gave God the ox goad. When God called him, he didn't look around and go, I don't, I can't do this. I can't save Israel, Lord. All I have is this stick. He did the opposite. He said, Lord, I'm going to bring you this ox code. It's all I've got, and I'm going to keep using it. Even when other weapons are available, I'm going to keep using what God gave me. So we have to ask ourselves, what's your ox code? What is the little that God has given you? Is it, I'm good with computers. Maybe, I'm good with kids. Maybe I like doing acts of service. Things that in and of themselves might seem completely insignificant, completely small. But look at what God does when we give him what little we have. 600 Philistines. Whatever it is that God has given you, give it to him. And he is the one who's powerful enough to take it and use it for his kingdom. Final point. When we allow sin to rule, it gets fat. We talked about the fact that in this story, it's specifically noted that Eglon was a very fat man. Now, in history, typically being fat was a sign of royalty. Because what that meant is that you could afford to have much more than what was necessary. Back then, you would only eat what you could afford to eat. And hunter-gatherers would just eat whatever they've hunted and gathered. It was a sign of prosperity to be overweight because you can afford to eat more than what you need. 
This guy, it says, was very fat. So, again, picture Jabba the Hutt. And we ask the question, why is Eglon so fat? Because he is getting fat off of the slavery of the Israelites. All of this, this wealth and prosperity that he is gaining is because of what he is taking from the people. Their sin has cost them everything. After all, it says, Ehud is there to pay him tribute. Verse 17, he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Ehud is the bagman. When the people have to send their tribute to the king, Ehud is the guy that carries that tribute. He and a number of others. Because it says that he wasn't alone. In verse 18, when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. So Ehud is the lead bag man. He's got a, a group of people who are carrying to King Eglon all of the wealth of the people. Paying their exorbitant tax, giving Eglon all that they have. And so Eglon just sits in his castle and takes and takes and takes, eats and eats and eats. This is exactly what sin will do to us if we allow it to remain. We will continually have to keep paying it tribute We will continue to have to make sacrifices to it. And it will get fat off of all that we have to give it. But God sends a savior. A savior to pay the price for us. And a savior pays the price and then kills the sin. Again, this looks forward to Jesus who paid the tribute that we deserved. He paid our tribute and then he killed the sin by taking the death upon himself to bring freedom to the people. After Ehud pays tribute and kills the king, he leads the people in victory. This is exactly what Jesus does for us. He pays the tribute, he kills the sin, and then he leads the people in victory. With style points, you might say, based on this text, that God looks at our sin and he kills the crap out of it. (laughs) So, what is your temporary savior? What is is it that you have been trying to save yourself with? Tonight, I hope you realize, whatever it is, it will not solve your eternal problem. Only Christ can do that. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word. Thank you for setting us free from sin if we give ourselves to you God, I pray for every person under the sound of my voice. Lord, if there are any who have never surrendered to you, Lord, may tonight be the night that they do just that. May tonight be the night that you draw them to yourself, that they realize all that you have done for them, all that you have offered them, and that tonight they would stop seeking life in a temporary solution and seek it in you. 
And Lord, I pray for all of us who have at one point given our hearts to you, but are still holding back in other ways, still holding on to various sins, still holding on to temporary solutions and temporary hopes, still holding on to habits in which we try to find ourselves. God, I pray that tonight you would convict us. Tonight you would show us what those things are, that we might lay those at your feet. God, as we sing our closing song, I pray that you would help each of us to reflect, to allow the Holy Spirit to work, to allow the Holy Spirit to point out to us those those things that remain, to allow the Holy Spirit to convict us to surrender in the areas that we desperately need to surrender. And so, Lord, I pray that some decisions would be made tonight. Decisions in which you bring freedom in ways that people have never experienced freedom. God, I pray that whatever it is, we would lay it down at your feet. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Allison will play our closing.